Because we've done so many interviews in the domain of artificial intelligence here at Tech Emergence, we've talked a good deal about neural networks and the particular approach uh, to artificial intelligence uh, to which neural networks fits under. Uh, as it turns out, there's been a decent swing in the general approach to artificial intelligence, how we solve artificial intelligence problems. From the 60s to today, what we might call neural networks as a general approach uh, to, to developing AI um, has come in and out of favor two or three times until now when we have more data than the human race has ever had access to and can pump terabytes of data to train these neural nets. In this particular episode, Peter J. Mosterman, uh, who is an adjunct professor at McGill University, speaks with us about some of the shifts in the general approach to artificial intelligence and why what we now consider to be neural networks went into and out of favor a number of different occasions and where these trajectories in the swing of the pendulum in terms of the, the generally accepted AI research approach may take us in the future. So without further ado, we'll hop right in. So Peter, I wanted to first ask you uh, about uh, a topic that we had chatted about actually via email even before uh, the interview here about this dynamic of causation and correlation in AI research and how sometimes we hit a brick wall in one. It seems as though the field sort of shifts to the opposite uh, direction. At least this is your perspective. Give us an idea on that dynamic. Why is that happening? How has that happened through the history of AI? Yeah, I think, well, it's, I think it's happening because it's you know, pretty substantially different in, in the sense that currently, you know, with the whole big data, we're, we're very much about correlation. We're trying to find patterns uh, yeah. of correlating data, if you will, and, and based on that, we try to draw inferences. And, uh, and, and I mean, there's some really exciting research that has come out of it. Uh, I think Microsoft had some research published on, I think it's scene detection, where they actually are able to determine whether what they show you in a certain scene is, is a, a, a night stand or, or it's a guitar, it's a rock concert. Um, so they can actually detect what a particular scene is shown in a picture. They were pretty good on the accuracy there. Um, and, and, but this is all done in, in a you know, by, by using correlation. Yep. So you, yep. you sort of have to have this baseline data and, and so you can start comparing it to knowledge you have. Um, and then you can try to find things that relate to it and that show the same pattern. Um, that's going really well right now. And, and you know, probably someone to mention here is uh, Hinton because I – I'm very excited about uh, seeing him do all this work. He's University of Toronto, yep. Jeff, uh, Jeffrey Hinton. He's yep. now at Google as well, I think. Um, because he was actually one of the authors of a book on uh, learning in neural networks, the, the backpropagation algorithm uh, that I used when I was in college. So that was Rumelhut, Hinton, and Williams. Yep. And, um, and, and so in the 80s, that was backpropagation was really exciting. What, and what is backpropagation, just to get an idea, Peter? I'm, in, I'm interested in sort of some of these technical terms. I'm familiar with Hinton just because he's such a big name in the AI and machine learning space, but what is backpropagation? Yeah, the, the, so even a step back, you know, before that, in the 60s, you actually had the perceptron. The perceptron was basically modeled after neural networks. So it sounds very intimidating. Well, <laughs> it, it is. <laughs> uh, but it's uh, it, it it was it was relatively straightforward in, in taking how we think a neuron operates in the brain. It has a bunch of inputs. Uh, 
then these inputs are taken together. They're they're summed with a certain weighting factor, and if it's above a threshold, it fires a pulse to a next neuron. Yep. We kind of figured that's how the brain works. Um, that perceptron, you know, was really exciting at the time, but Minsky and Paper published a paper that showed that you could not learn an exclusive OR. Exclusive OR meaning uh, if two inputs are both, or is if either one of them is true, then the output is true, and otherwise the output is false. Um, you could not learn that particular logic uh, with one one perceptron, and so that was in the late '60s. And that paper you know, more or less uh, killed the interest in that field, at least for that time um, being, right? Yes. And then in the '80s, it came back thanks yep. to the work by Rubelhart and Williams, and they actually created a, a multi-layer neural network. But of course, if you have multiple layers in a network, then if you know whether the output is right or wrong, um, you have to modify the, the, the weight factors in your network, the learning, if you will, accordingly. That means that you have to take that output, right or wrong, and you have to somehow modify all these parameters in these multiple layers that you have in your network. And that means that you have to take the output, the result of that output, and backpropagate that to, to modify the parameters in your network such that uh, it, it actually learns. And that was the backpropagation algorithm. Huh, okay. So they overcame a, a pretty fundamental limitation of the perceptron. And this, is, this, that was, this was Minsky's major gripe is what they sort of overcame to some degree here? Yeah, yeah yep. paper, paper okay. to Minsky. And so, so that gave an enormous boost to the neural net uh, community again, um, which is really exciting, and I also started looking into it. But then it kind of withered because people found that it's good in certain applications, but it's not so good in other applications. Hmm, in, what, in what sense? Give us some examples here, Peter, just in terms of sort of fruitful and less fruitful uh, you know, uses of, of such a network. Well, the, the, the really useful piece, of course, that, that I found was the, the maintenance, for example, of helicopters. This is really oh. cool. Uh, it, 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 you, could, you could learn a neural net to, to uh, predict whether a, a helicopter rotor is about to fail. Uh, just by listening to the, the sound that it makes. So by hearing this rotor, it could tell you, you've got to perform maintenance on this helicopter because it's about to, to break. Um, but that's a really cool application, and that's very difficult to do if you try to create a model from first principles, like based on the physics. Yep. Uh, so so that, that, was a, that was a nice success, I think. The more challenging piece is that certain things you can't learn so well um, – I, I looked into, for example, modeling the, the behavior of a robot, um, in particular a robot joint, but a robot joint has uh, a, a, a transformation from forces, you, you, you actuate with the force and it then creates a position of that arm, and that requires you to integrate over time, it's a differential equation relation. And that is captured quite well with physics and not at all with these, these neural nets. Uh, technically because it's an infinite impulse response and the neural nets are finite impulse response. So that, that, was, a, that was a tricky uh, matter. And then that, that sort of took away from the value of these neural nets. They weren't you know, all that encompassing as people had thought. Um, now we're, so, we're different, just so for my clarity here, Peter, as I'm, I'm grasping some of this, again, a, a bit of this is new. I've, I've interviewed people with something like PhDs in like 20 different uh, disciplines. So Pardon my uh, my 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 lack of being able to keep up at, at that level with with all of them, but um, with respect to the the neural nets versus as you had mentioned, sort of the 
the the more you know causation or I think you'd refer to it sort of first principles uh, applications of AI. Did did they find that different approaches to AI worked well in different circumstances? In other words, hey, over here. Uh, we're leveraging this kind of AI to solve this kind of problem because it seems to be fit and, and suited. And over here, you know, as you had mentioned in helicopters, for example, uh, this particular kind of of, uh, of artificial intelligence um, was a little bit better suited as well. Did it start to diverge in terms of their applications from these two different approaches? Well, it's yeah, it's a little bit about you know, you 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 can do very well in predictions based on either a whole bunch of data or based on a good understanding. Yeah. Um, and and neural nets work really well if you have bunches of data. And I think that's also why you now see, so, so you know, looking at the pendulum, in the 60s, you know, there was excitement about the perceptron and that sort of withered. Uh, then it came back in the 80s and it sort of withered and it's back again. Right? Yeah. And it's back again now. Because we have all this data electronically available. Got it. Okay, okay. So like you had said, I think this is a really interesting distinction, probably more more important than maybe the people listening in have, have understood. As you said, um you can you know you can do a good job of prediction if you uh something about if, if you really you if you really understand what's going on or if you have a lot of data to be able to to draw on. And obviously as you're mentioning in, in this world of big data, if if we have Sort of ubiquitously available gobs of it uh, right. from from all different domains. We can we can play around a lot in the correlation world. Right. Yeah. And and building you know, and, and working with or or creating value based on an understanding is much more challenging in a certain way. Yep. Um, you know, we're like if you look at CERN for example, right now we're we're in a nice area where we tried to validate a, a lot of the theory on you know, theoretical physics, um, but that takes a lot of effort. Uh, but if you can develop these theories, that these theories actually give you very deep knowledge, and so now you don't necessarily need lots and lots of data because you know the principles behind how something works, yes, yes. And, and from these principles you can make predictions. So either you, you you throw terabytes of data at it, or you spend some time trying to figure out what the relationships are, what the causal relationships are, what what theory you can build. And then from that theory, you can actually derive value. Uh, and and so after, for example, Minsky papered the perceptron, uh, people then started looking more into how can we formulate expert systems, right? Yep. Yep. How can you how can you formulate the theories, the knowledge that we have? How can you capture facts? How can you how can you infer from these facts? Um, and so they then that actually found itself in a major upswing. So this this notion. Of planning, I was just looking it up here uh, to make sure Strips is what it was called. The Stanford Research Institute problem solver Got was it. an automated planner. Um, you had mice in. Uh, mice in actually was able to diagnose patients. So you would tell a doctor what your symptoms were, and it will it would tell you, well, this is probably uh, what what your uh, suffering from, yeah. What your condition is. Yep. That actually also came out of uh, Stanford, and that was that was in the seventies, early seventies. So after the perceptron sort of you know was was out of the door, people started looking more into these these uh, artificial intelligence based on inf inferencing and, and theories. Um, the problem there then was that these these inferencing chains became very long, very lengthy. Uh, computational power was challenging, um, but also 
these these expert systems is what they were designing. You know, they they could give you the right diagnosis perhaps, but they were not very good at explaining to you why they arrived at that solution. Yeah. And if you're a doctor and a machine tells you this patient has this condition, you'd want to know why it says that. Yeah. And so even if the even if the diagnosis is correct, you still want to know as a, as a physician why it is that they say that. Yep. Yeah. Um, so that that worked, but it worked didn't work so great, but it, it had some value to it. Um, and so then people started to look more into say qualitative reasoning. So can I qualitatively uh, trace back the, the causal relations in you know in a certain problem or that that that, that demonstrate why a certain why I see a certain effect. Yeah. Uh, and and that works pretty well. Uh, the, the challenge is there were, of course, that you had a lot of spurious behavior because you do things in, quali in a qualitative sense, not quantitatively. Um, so that sort of then, you know, you, you, that was followed up now uh, by the, the, the whole big data drive and, and what you see in machine learning uh, that has, has really started to prevail. Uh, and, and it'll be interesting to see where it goes next. Yeah, I was, I was going to mention there, Peter. I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, it sounds to me as though we're talking about two different sorts of approaches, and this is interesting because I've never, never necessarily heard it explained this particular way. Um, it, it's interesting because it, it doesn't appear as though one is horrendously wrong and one is obviously right. It, it seems as though in different circumstances, um, different, uh, different approaches to artificial intelligence might be more advantageous. Um, do you foresee in the future uh, an increasing emphasis on one or the other overall? Do you foresee potentially uh, a synthesis between the two in a more effective sense that maybe hasn't been done thus far? Being someone who's been in the field for so long, and again, you'd mentioned you know being tuned into Hinton's work you know decades ago. Um, where where do you think things will turn next? Are we going to lean in one direction, or are we going to start to combine the two? Where do you think? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good observation, I think, and I I very much agree with where you're kind of leading this a little bit in a sense is that we will, I think we will see a synthesis and, and I think we need to a, a synthesis in the sense that we need a layered architecture. Um, and, uh, this goes a little bit to the work of, uh, uh, Ray Kurzweil, for example, on yeah. the singularity. Um, there, there also was some interesting, uh, there's this book by Michael Penrose, the, the emperor's new mind, where the emperor gets this new powerful computer and, and he gets to ask this computer the first question and he asks the computer, what's it like to be a computer? Right? And, and of course the computer couldn't answer that question. Yeah. Um, th th there's this sense of consciousness and, and interestingly enough, just recently out of uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, uh, Selmer Brinkshart had an interesting experiment where they had three robots and, and two of them couldn't talk and one could talk, but neither of them knew that they could. And they asked him, can you talk? And the robot that says, uh, I don't know if I can talk, then realized that, oh, if I can talk, and realized, oh, but I can talk. And so <laughs> this notion of consciousness that, we are, that we're trying to create. And I think if you look at, at people, how people work, there actually is a layering, right? That the, when we observe things in the world, they create sensations. That's the first step. Um, and these sensations are then turned into a perception. So the sensations may be the sound, you know, the, the, the way that it, it triggers the, the cochlear part of your yeah. ear or the, the, the cones in your eyes. Those are your, your sensations from the, from the world around you. 
you turn that into a perception. Uh, and, and our mind is actually pretty liberal in, in creating a relationship between that sensation and the perception. So you may see something that is only partially there, uh, and you will complete it. Like yeah. if, you have, if you have a beam and it's blocked somewhere by a tree in front of it, or say a power line, you, you will think that that power line continues behind that tree. Yeah. Um, and then from that perception, we actually create cognition. We actually create knowing, knowledge, if you will. Um, and I think that this, 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 uh, the, the, the correlation part is really what you use in the sensation perception layers of your overall intelligence. The causation part is really high up in the cognitive part of your, of your intelligence. Um, and so to me, that's, that's sort of interesting. It, 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 if you look at the correlation piece, for example, you know, this is something that came up because we're in Boston and it was kind of hot the other day. You know, if, if you look at a tree and an apple falls out because there's wind blowing, in a correlation sense, if it's hot, you might want to see if you can get a cool breeze. You might start shaking a tree to make an apple fall because when there's an apple falling, there's a breeze. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, but of course, there is no, there is a correlation, but there is no causation yep. there. Um, and I think that that, that deep, is something that is going to be very difficult to capture just by doing correlations, um, but but we will be able to capture it in, in much more of, of a first principles, theories, uh, rules of inferencing mechanism. And so I think you need these different layers and you need to put these all together. But what you see indeed is that sometimes you make a lot of progress in moving one of these layers forward and sometimes you make a lot of progress in moving one of the other layers forward. Yeah, as you had mentioned, kind of the pendulum swinging, so to speak. Um, out of my own curiosity here, and maybe as a last topic, are there examples now of some semblance of combination between the two? It would, it would seem as though you know certain data mining and, and pattern recognition tasks would, would be best suited for uh, the, the correlative approach. It would seem as though there's there's entirely different domains, maybe diagnostic or otherwise, where um, some of this first principles sort of beginning with the proper knowledge may in fact be more advantageous, more reliable, more su suited for certain instances. Are there examples now in any field that you're aware of, of some decent blending betwixt the two in the artificial intelligence world? Yeah, very, not, not at the level that I think it, it will have to be. Oh, for sure, um, yeah. And, and I think that that's, so I mean, we did some work on this when I was at Vanderbilt University in the late 90s, uh, where the, for, again, for diagnosis of technical systems, this was a combustion engine. And you would basically use the, 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 the correlation piece in uh, what we would call the signal to symbol transformation. So you get all these noisy signals and you first have to create sensible symbols out of them. And then you use these symbols in your reasoning part of your engine. Um, but that signal to symbol transformation was very crude. Uh, well, it was sophisticated in, in a mathematical sense, but it was crude in, in terms of what we could do nowadays with, with uh, data analyses. And so I don't know of a lot of research or even that's probably my own lack, I, but I don't know who actually is. It, the, the challenge is that People, this goes very deep down to verticals, right? So the, yeah. the people who are really excited about neural nets and, and, and big data and such, those are generally not the people who are very excited about 
reasoning systems, truth yep. maintenance. And so generally at, at the level of expertise required to move the field forward, there is not a lot of overlap. There's not oh. this notion of multidisciplinary, I think, that, that it would require. And so, uh, you know, in, in a sense, I'm really looking at large large organizations like Google may be able to do these things, bring together not only researchers who are good on, in, in one area, but also bring bring researchers together who are good in another area and, and perhaps force them to work together yeah. uh, so that they will actually start to combine these methods. Because generally, combining two completely orthogonal approaches is not straightforward either. No, uh, no, of course so not. So I can, I can see a challenges in, in integrating these uh, the, to, to the extent that you really must in order to be to be as successful as say you know in, in terms of trying to approach human intelligence yep huh so in so in, in your belief and, and it's it's interesting to make note you know and, and I think a lot of folks might even assume and, and you know maybe you know seven years ago I might have assumed that um, artificial intelligence, is a field that you can have a PhD in and you can sort of understand artificial intelligence. But, but by golly, uh, if you're really going to move the field forward, I mean, you know, you're going to end up being a specialist in a particular domain of a domain of artificial intelligence. And, 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 uh, and it's likely that, as you had mentioned, particular experts in human form would have to sort of combine their knowledges uh, in order to, to move the field forward uh, on both legs as opposed to just one. So, and you're, are you of the belief generally, Peter, that, that it might be companies more so than uh, the combined efforts of folks within universities that might make some of these bigger leaps and combine the two approaches? Yeah, I think, I, I think that, uh, I, I mean, the, the reason that this, 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 this correlation approach has made such a giant leap is because the companies have the data, uh, the universities don't. And in order to really push that forward, currently, we're leveraging the the, the data that companies have available, and that's why Google is so important because they have all that data. Um, this is at a premium, and, and uh, universities don't have that data, and it's very difficult for a company like Google to share that data um, yeah. because it's privacy issues and such. For sure. So, so at that point, you know, you're yeah, you're looking, you're really looking at Google. Um, I also think that this is another pendulum, perhaps, but I also see that. More and more research is being done again in industry. Uh, academia has become a little bit absorbed with publishing papers, and I think a lot of the resources go into creating a track record in publications. Yep. And, and I think that that is to the detriment of the actual research that they are performing. Yeah. So I see a little bit there again as well that we're now starting to look again more at, at industry to do some very important research. Interesting. Well, I mean, you know, I, I guess we do we do have those phenomenally uh, innovative companies such as Google who um, are, are undoubtedly interested in, in moving the field forward in very practical ways to further their own aims with, you know, the acquiring of so many companies and Boston Dynamics and you name it. Um, uh, I think that yeah, Google is a good name. I think Microsoft, of course, has a yep. really strong research department. But I also think that you know, we're at MathWorks. We also do quite a bit of research in actually pushing forward the foundational technologies in the correlation as well as the causation space. Um, of course, it's up to the, the experts to then exploit that and use it to the, to the best they can and actually really advance the, the field of artificial intelligence in that sense. But the foundational technologies is something that is very important to do all these computations efficiently. And I think that you know, MathWorks is doing a really good job at that as well. Uh, so I think that there is a 
play for industry in, in really in concert with academia. And, and, and of course, we should also keep moving forward the collaborations across those two worlds. Yeah, and in closing, Peter, as, as I know, we're, we're just we're just kind of coming up on, on the end of the interview here. Um, if, if you had any thoughts on how academia might do a better job there, I mean, that's where you, you know, spend a decent amount of your own time. Obviously, you had to be there for quite some time to, to get the Ph.D. Um, what, what do you think might be practical? And I can imagine it's not an, an easy answer, but as a last question, what do you think might be some practical uh, advice or perspective on, on how academia might kind of keep up and, and get out of just the rut of papers and, and uh, continue to be a real contributor in these fields? Yeah, this, this is an interesting question. I think uh, there are some people who are now trying to understand better what the, say, uh, information dissemination model of the 21st century will look like. Um, I, I, it's starting to look like we're moving away from the traditional paper publishing houses, the publishers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the paywall of, uh, you know, uh, yeah. you know, Springer and all this. I mean, I, I, I just see that kind of being very dinosaurish in the coming 20 years. Right. And I think that perhaps the entire modality of, of a paper where you have a title and abstract. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, even that. I mean, I, I, I don't think anybody should be married to that. No. And it, it could well be that this is becoming more like an open timeline of a, a, a scientific exploration. And so people can contribute to it. For example, the reviews that you now get when you submit a paper, those are, those are confidential and nobody will see these yep. generally. But there's a lot of value in these reviews. Yeah. So to just create an open timeline where something is published, reviews are published to that timeline, people can add to that timeline, expand on it. That sounds like maybe that's a good model to disseminate academic achievement in the future. And hopefully that would help us get out of this this cottage industry of, of writing writing papers and spending most of your time most of your time producing papers rather than doing actual yeah, producing papers that would cost somebody hundred and twenty bucks to download and that maybe, you know, maybe a dozen people before you die might look at sometimes. You know, not always, but sometimes maybe that's that's the unfortunate case. I, I completely agree with you. I think it's an entirely different topic, but I, I'm I'm certainly of the the belief that this sort of published paper paywall deal. I'm not against it, right? I'm not like anti Springer, bring them down. You know, I, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with them as people. I just think the model and the efficientness and effectiveness of the dissemination and, and, and connection of various research, you know, around the world in terms of transparency and, and growth of these fields really is not furthered by how it's being done uh, well, today. And, and a lot of the value that they contributed in the past. Has has gone away. I mean, people now produce. I, I use LaTeX and I create my own PDF, and it looks it looks pretty good quality. The the whole typesetting, the the, the proofreading, all the stuff that that publishers would contribute to a, an ultimate publication, sort of has has been removed. And so then you can question, well, what is the value that is left? Um, and yeah. I think also this is for for publishers. This is a challenge to find their space in, in this new world. Oh, I, I think so. I think so. I think Elsevier or Elsevier, however you pronounce that, let a company yeah, out there in, in the in the Norway or wherever they are. Um, yeah, the, themselves and Springer and and uh, the the other big houses there. I think I think the next. Uh, the next 10 or 15, as you had mentioned, are going to be awful challenging. I think that would take us down an entirely another rabbit hole, but I think hopefully it's worth chewing on for the other academics out there uh, 
to, to that that you know an increasing semblance of, of transparency to sort of remove that siloedness that Peter's referring to may in fact be beneficial. I, I certainly believe so. Peter, thanks so much for uh, for being here on the Tech Emergence podcast today. I appreciate you sharing your thoughts. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate your conversation. That wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emergence Podcast, and thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives, top researchers, and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com, where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category, as well as articles, news, market research, and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes, or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website. Thanks as always for tuning in, and I'll catch you next week.